Thanks for listening to the High Street Young Adults Podcast. For more information and how to get connected, check out highstreet.org slash youngadults. How are we doing tonight? So much better. If you need a reason to get excited, Piper has me going 45 minutes and I would be shocked if I make it that far. We're looking maybe like a tight 20, 25 and I'll get you guys out of here, don't worry about it. Uh, But no, seriously, I wanna welcome you tonight. Thank you all for being here. I'm excited to have you guys here as we continue in our series called No Signal Found. Uh, The last couple of weeks we've had Ben Shank, who I am a poor imitation of, as you can probably tell, and (laughs) Logan liked that, and uh, and Jared, and they've done a great job unpacking some truth about what it feels like when we're lost and confused in those moments when we don't see him, to feel like God is with us, that he's near us. Uh, How do we handle those situations? What's the right response? Where is God actually in those moments? And so tonight, that's what I want to continue on, and we're going to dig deep into that. Um, But before we get started, I should probably introduce myself for those of you uh, who maybe don't know me. My name is Jordan, and I, along with Kirsten, who's up in the booth right now, uh, we lead the production team here at Young Adults. Yeah, so you've probably seen me uh, running around like a crazy person before service with a microphone or uh, trying to like find, figure out what's going on. Uh, Maybe there's been a bright light shine in your eyes at one point, and uh, that's probably my fault. Uh, Probably shouldn't tell you guys that, but... uh, now you have a face to put to that, that anger that burns up inside of you when you get to that point. So that's probably uh, not my best idea, but whatever. Uh, so tonight, like I said, I wanna continue that story of no signal found. And tonight we're gonna look at has God forgotten me? Uh, I think we all understand what it means to be forgotten. Maybe it's that moment when you just come out of high school and you go to college for the first time. Uh, you're looking around at a sea of faces that all seem unfamiliar to you and you feel alone. Uh, maybe it's uh, you're looking for a church home right now. The people in your life just don't seem to be on your side. It seems to be that you have to be there for them, but where are they for you when you need them most? Uh, maybe you're after college. Uh, I remember this one for sure, coming out of college, and everybody seems to kind of scatter and go different directions, and all of a sudden you just kind of feel like you're on an island by yourself, and uh, you feel all alone, and you have no idea what the direction of your life is supposed to be. There's so many different moments uh, in our life when we feel forgotten, so many different points in our life when we're not sure where to go and when we kind of feel stuck. I remember one time specifically, um, and this is, by the way, if you haven't been here before, I always start these with a basketball story. Um, If you've been here long enough, you'll know what that means, but you'll get it in a second if you don't. Uh, I was 15, I was a freshman in high school, and uh, it was, I was played on the freshman team as well as the junior varsity team. Uh, which when you're a 15 year old is basically the highest achievement you can have besides maybe getting your driver's permit and showing it off to all the girls at school who seemed incredibly unimpressed. Um, But so I was on the freshman and the junior varsity team and it came to towards the end of the season and the freshman schedule is a lot shorter than the junior varsity schedule because there just aren't as many teams. And so it came time for that cycle to be over and that they didn't have any games left. So our coach gathered us all up at the end of practice and he thanked us and he said, you know, congrats on a great season, et cetera, et cetera. And then he told us, uh, the rest of you can go home, but I need Ben and Chris to stay. Now Ben and Chris were the other two freshmen that played on the junior varsity team. And so me, being an obedient little 15-year-old that I was, turned around and started heading back to the locker room. And our junior varsity coach comes and he grabs me on the shoulder. And I look at him, I'm like, what? He's like, where do you think you're going? 
And I looked at him, I was like, I'm going back to the locker room where you, where you told me to. And he goes, no, he, f- he doesn't know who you are. He forgets your name. Like, you need to come back and you need to join the rest of the practice. We've got to finish this out. And I just looked at him like, what? how did he forget my name? It's been four months. We practice here every day. My name's probably on his shoes. Like, Jordan, in a basketball context, it kind of goes hand in hand, doesn't it? I mean, I can't see how he forget something as easy as that. And yet, there I was, feeling forgotten. It's not easy or fun to be forgotten, and it's definitely hard to look at someone who's supposed to be your leader, my coach, and say, I'm going to follow that person when you think they don't have your best interests in mind, when you don't even think they know your name. And so that's what we're going to unpack, and I think, uh, obviously, we're going to have a scripture we're going to look at. It's going to be in Exodus chapter 13. Um, I think there's a lot of different stories in the Bible that you can look at for this kind of idea, Um, but the one I want to focus on tonight is uh, the Exodus, um, which is a fun fact. It's why the book Exodus is called Exodus, and uh, I didn't even have to go to BBC to figure that one out. Um, And so you might be thinking, though, like, and where we're going to pick it up is right when the Exodus actually starts. So at this point, the Israelites who have been oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians for centuries, for generations, who have been dreaming of getting liberated by someone who would then take them to the promised land, they finally reach that moment, right? So why are we picking it up here? Like, this seems to be almost the opposite of that. Like, a time when God was more remembering of his people. He had just brought plague after plague on Egypt, darkness and frogs and locusts and uh, all sorts of different things. And yet, they end up feeling forgotten. They end up feeling stuck. And so why is that? So I want to set the context really quick. We're going to read, uh, we're going to pick it up in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. Um, And it says, When the Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And then we're going to skip to uh, chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hiroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon, and BBC kids, feel free to correct my pronunciation to yourself, Uh, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Lord, and they did so. So I think one thing that can happen when we read passages like this is that we read over it and we just kind of gloss over the fact that this is like a real thing that happened. This is happening in a real place, in a real time that we can actually see now, even today. So I brought along a map to kind of help better understand what's going on here. Uh, It's kind of a big mess, as you can see with all the red lines. The part I want to focus on is on the far left side of the screen, specifically those three red lines. So those are where Israel starts, right? And so where they want to go is the top right corner of the screen. Uh, That is the promised land. That is the land of Canaan, and that's their goal, right? So the line, the most efficient route for them to take is kind of that brown line up there towards the top that runs across the Mediterranean Sea. You'll notice that the red lines point in the direct opposite direction of the brown line, the most efficient route to get there. Not only that, but if you look, as the red line starts to go east a little bit, it turns backwards, comes back the direction they had just come to where they encamp at Pi Hiroth. So as you might, as you might think that um, 
when this was going on, the Israelites were a little confused, right? They knew where they wanted to go, all right? God had given them a goal. He had, given them, he had told them, he had promised them that this would be their home, this land of Canaan. And then the moment finally came, the moment for them to finally be liberated and to start going, where did God say to go? Straight south. Not north, not northeast, south. And so why did he do that? Why did he point them in that direction? And so there's two main points, um, and I think if Pastor Eddie were here, he'd probably say, can you do a sermon in two points? Uh, Don't tell him I said that. Uh, But I have two main points tonight that I want to talk about. And as we unpack, like, what was God doing in this moment? Why did God send them in this direction? Why didn't he just let them go the most efficient route that they could have? So the first point is that simply we're not ready. So when we look at Uh, where we are at and why God often detours us, I think the first thing we have to see is in uh, verse 17 of chapter 13. When the Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. See, God knew that the shortest distance to the place the Israelites were trying to go was north, but he also knew their heart. He also knew what experiences they were bringing. He also knew what state of mind they were in. And he knew that the second they saw the Philistines, they were just going to freak out and start running back to Egypt. It didn't matter that God had all power over the Philistines, that he could have just wiped them out with nothing but a thought. The hearts of the people of Israel weren't ready to face any kind of challenge yet. They needed to be refined. They needed to be, they had they needed to have their faith built up and strengthened so that when they did face those obstacles, they were ready. And so God knew that the only place that that could happen is in the desert in a forge of heat. Uh, and so thinking about that, um, I grew up not too far from here um, in a town called Reed Spring, which you've probably never heard of before. Uh, it's about 100, 200 people. Uh, but it's right outside of the city of Branson, Um, In fact, it's so close to Branson, I could actually see uh, the loops of wildfire uh, from my house, and you can hear the train whistle at night uh, as people ride around. So as you can quite imagine, we went to Silver City in the summertime a lot. Uh, I rode every roller coaster. I think my personal record was uh, 20 times on wildfire without getting off one day. Uh, Don't recommend it. It will make you sick. Um, But eventually, you kind of get tired of roller coasters. I mean... As fun as they are, eventually you've kind of ridden them all and you find that the park is much, much bigger than just roller coasters. So you start kind of looking around at these other shops and other stores and try to figure out what this place is all about. And I remember walking into one of the stores and it was a blacksmith. And uh, if you've been to Silver City before, you know they're really big on demonstrations. And so I walk in there and this guy is doing uh, a demonstration as he's making something. So he has this big block of iron sitting on the table and behind him is this massive furnace, and so he took that iron and he put it in the furnace after he turned up the flames and got it real, real hot, thousands of degrees, and then he just waited. And he waited and he waited for the, for the iron inside to get hotter and hotter, and then he took it out. And when he took it out, what once was this solid object that was basically unbreakable was now this malleable piece of iron that he could form and shape into whatever he wanted. So he brings that out and he sets it down and then he gets out the biggest hammer you've ever seen and he starts banging on it and shards of it are just flying off and then he takes out a grinder and he's like shaving off the edges of this iron and he keeps molding it and molding it and twisting it until it starts to cool and it hardens and it starts to settle into this shape and then as soon as he does that he just throws it right back into the fire, heats it right back up and starts the process all over again and he does that repeatedly until he finally ends up with a finished product 
And what started as this lump of iron, which looked like it had no purpose, looked like it had very little potential or uses, now was this perfect tool that only he saw in that iron before anyone else did. I certainly didn't know what he was going to make when I walked in there, but he saw it. He saw in that unrefined shape the potential and power of what it could become. And so, see, God does that with us, right? God uses opportunities and detours like what he did with the Israelites to, har- to shape us, to, to refine us. Now, think about it for a second, though. If you were the iron, right? If the iron could talk, what would the iron say when this kind of stuff was starting to happen? I doubt it would be too thrilled, right? I mean, I can't imagine anybody would be excited about getting thrown into a furnace that's thousands of degrees, then yanked back out, and then having pieces of you broken off with a hammer as he just swings it wildly to watch his pieces of you get shaved off. And you're probably looking at him like, hey, I'm, I'm kind of okay. Like, I think I'm fine just the way I am. Maybe I don't need to have all this stuff going on right now. How about I was just fine sitting over there on the shelf. You seem to have gotten a weird fascination with me. How about you just leave me alone and I'll be fine the way I am. But what the problem is in that is the iron doesn't see what it can become. The iron doesn't see its future. It doesn't see the, journey, or the destination of its journey. It only knows that right now is hard and painful, but it's sacrificing the present for the sake of the future. And so that's what God does. He detours us. He redirects us into the hot heat of the desert so that he can refine our character. Now, thinking on that for my own life, um, I think about one time when I first started coming to High Street, um, which is a long time ago, I won't say how long. Um, And when I first came here, I was a sophomore in college, and I had grown up in church. I'd been a part of church for almost my entire life and um, was really involved in my high school youth group and served on the leadership team and led Bible studies and even spoke and did things like this. And uh, I just remember thinking that when I came here that that was basically what was going to happen, right? Like they were just going to recognize like my talent as I walked into the room and just probably just hand me the keys right off the bat, right? Um, So I remember about six or eight months into uh, starting here in the college class, um, they um, offered up a leadership team applications. And the purpose of it was to find people who could lead some Bible studies that we were going to start up. And so I took one, I filled it out very eagerly, and I turned it in, and I was like, this is basically a done deal. Like, I just need to pick which day of the week I'm going to do my Bible studies on and maybe start fleshing out my curriculum. Uh, and I remember when it came back and they announced who it was, I was not chosen. And if I'm being honest, in that moment, I was angry and upset. I was confused. Um, I was very jealous and envious. I was one of those people that's sitting there like, you picked this guy? Like, have you met this guy? Like, seriously? Like, you're going to let him do it and not me? Have you met me? Like, do you know what I've done? And, like, all these things, all these, like, hateful, evil thoughts popped into my head, and I just couldn't get rid of them. In fact, it, it, it started to come into my soul so much that I actually kind of was debating on whether or not I should just leave High Street and, and go to another church. I was like, I ha- I'm not really invested in this place. They obviously don't see any potential in me. Why should I stick around here? Like, this just feels like not the right fit. Um, but thankfully, a couple of guys who were selected um, reached out to me and they invited me into the Bible study that they were starting. Uh, and so I said yes. And over the next year, uh, I learned everything that I didn't know. And I was amazed at how often God would teach me things that I thought I knew but didn't really understand until I saw it through them. I needed people in my life to invest in me so that I could learn how to invest in somebody else. 
I had this warped understanding of where I was. I had a great goal. My goal was to be a leader in a church youth group, to be involved and participating and to share the gospel with people and to help lead people to Christ. A great goal. And I thought I had a plan of how to get there. I thought I understood the most efficient route to get there. And the problem was is God knew that I wasn't ready. God knew that I needed more time to be, to be refined, to prepare my character, so that eventually I could step into that role and be ready for the, for the plan that God had for me. The second point tonight um, is that we are part of a bigger plan. Um, so not only is God using these detours in our lives to refine our character, but he's also working in a much larger way that sometimes we can't necessarily see or understand. So let's look back at uh, chapter 14, verse 1, real quick. Uh, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. So I talked about basketball a little bit a while ago. Um, Let's put this in that kind of context for a second. So imagine you're in a a big game, all right? It's the championship game, everything's on the line. Your coach calls a timeout real quick and you run over and he says, all right, Moses, this isn't it, here's the deal. I want you to get the ball. I want you to dribble it straight towards the other team's basket. All right, you got that? Then I want you to spin around in circles really, really fast. Now see this look of confusion you got on your face right now, this like dumbfounded look, that's perfect. Keep that up, we're gonna need that later, it's gonna help out a lot. All right, so now as you're spinning in circles, go straight towards the corner, pick up the ball, and just stand there and look terrified. But don't worry, it won't have to last for long because the other team in full force is gonna come and attack you, all right? And that's gonna work, and we're gonna win the game, and it's gonna be awesome. Now you'd probably look at him and be like, that is the stupidest plan I have ever heard in my entire life, right? It makes no sense. Not only that, He's going to tell the other team what you're going to do. He's going to harden Pharaoh's heart and force him to pursue you. That's not going to, be, that's not going to work out well. In fact, the Israelites had the same response. If you skip a little bit down to verse 10 in chapter 14, uh, it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we might serve the Egyptians, for it would not have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So they're so terrified at this point, they want to go back. This Uh, this liberation, this freedom that they sought after for centuries, as soon as they have it and things start to get a little hard, they're like, maybe not. Maybe this isn't the best idea. Let's just head on back. But see, they didn't realize that God's plan is bigger than us and that his glory is made greatest by the way that he weaves his plans for everyone together. So what happens next after this point, right? Uh, For those of you that have read this story before or seen basically any Bible movie ever, you'll know that uh, right after this, Moses and the Israelites respond and follow God's commands, and so they find themselves pinned up against the Red Sea. Pharaoh shows up. God splits the Red Sea. Moses and the Israelites cross. Pharaoh and his army pursues them, and then the waters collapse, and Pharaoh and his army drown and die in in that moment. 
And so what God did in that moment was a couple of things. Number one, he defeated one of Israel's greatest enemies, right? Without Israel even having to pick up a sword and fight them. He liberated them not just for that moment, but he set them free forever. Never again would Egypt have the power to come up and invade Israel like it did with that army in that moment. It also did a second thing, which was a little bit bigger, right? Because in that moment, he sent a message. Not only to Egypt, that he was God. He demonstrated his power and showed them that he is Lord, Lord of the Israelites, Lord of the Egyptians, Lord over all people. But that message didn't just stay in Egypt. It started to echo out. I mean, word travels. Even without Facebook and Twitter, if a sea collapses and drowns a bunch of people, I think we're going to talk about it. And so as this word starts to spread out and goes to different places, what we find is that God used that moment to win battles for the Israelites they hadn't even fought yet. They hadn't even encountered enemies before God already defeated them. And so one great example of that is looking at the city of Jericho. Um, if you remember on the map from earlier, uh, it's kind of up in the top right corner, so we're a little bit farther in their journey. Uh, but they come up to this city, and God orders them to send some spies in, in to kind of see what's going on. And they encounter this woman named Rahab. Um, and so we'll pick it up in Joshua 2, uh, verses 8 and 9. It says, Before the men lay down, she, meaning Rahab, uh, came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard now that the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So God's plan in that moment for the Israelites wasn't just about that moment. He was using it to defeat enemies that they hadn't even faced yet. And they, didn't even, they had no idea. They couldn't see ahead and see the purpose of what God is using in that moment. Instead, they just decided to entrench themselves in fear and self-doubt and self-pity. And wonder that God had abandoned them when he promised he would be there for them. Not only that, he was also working in Rahab's life. Rahab ends up becoming a woman whose descendants actually are the lineage of Jesus. If you look in Matthew, in the first chapter of Matthew, where it lists uh, the genealogy of Jesus, you'll find that it specifically denotes that Rahab was the mother of Boaz, uh, who God calls in Ruth um, a, righteous, a righteous man of God. And so to see all that happen together, like just think about it for a second and let's just kind of look at a big overview of it. So God had his chosen people enslaved in Egypt, right? And he decides to free them. And when he frees them, rather than send them straight to the land where he had uh, established for them that they would set up and become a nation, he heads them in the opposite direction. First, to refine their character and to build up their faith but he also uses it to send a message out to the people of all nations that they would encounter along the way, that these are God's chosen people, that he is Lord over them, and these people became afraid, and not only that, some of them believed like Rahab. And because of Rahab's faith, God, def uh, God gave a way for the Israelites to defeat the city of Jericho, and because of Rahab's faith, her family was spared from the um, destruction of the city, and because Rahab's family was spared, her line was used to um, lead to Jesus. 
So without that moment, without the Israelites being entered in that state of confusion and being detoured into the wilderness, as big of an effect as the genealogy and the, the descendants of Jesus would be impacted. So it wasn't just some small moment that had no real significance. It wasn't just some decision that God made on a whim. It wasn't some idea that just seemed like, uh, man, maybe this will work. If not, I'll figure something else out. God had a plan from the beginning. And just because the Israelites didn't understand it didn't mean that that offered them an opportunity to respond in fear, but instead respond in faith and trust. And so you might be thinking that you know, these kinds of stories are great and they sound great, but they're just in the Bible. Like, where you can read these stories, but they don't really kind of translate into real life. Um, and so thinking on that topic, I, I remember this one kind of story in my life uh, that goes all the way back to when I was five years old. Um, you know, the idea for everyone, I think one of the big things, one of the big goals in life is that you find a career that you're passionate about, right? Uh, that old saying that if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Um, every one of us, at some point or another, tries very, very hard to figure out what it is that we're supposed to do for a job, for a career, and to invest in that. And I remember when I was five years old, um, my mom decided that I didn't need to start kindergarten. In fact, she wanted me to wait one more year until I was six years old. Um, and she did that because I'm the best son in the world. Uh, and she wanted me, she didn't want to leave me. I mean, why would you want to give up on this? Why would you want not to hang out with this for all another year? And uh, my apologies to all the other sons in the room. There's nothing wrong with second place. Um, but first place is taken, unfortunately. And if you don't believe me, you can ask my mom. She'll back me up 100%. Um, but so, she, so she waited. So I started kindergarten when I was six, which means that I graduated high school um, a year later than all the other people my age, the, the age that I normally would have. Um, and so there's a lot of things that happen between that moment and graduating high school, but because I don't want to go to Piper's 45 minutes, um, I'll just skip kind of towards the end and look at um, when I was a senior in high school. So uh, getting ready to go to college, starting to apply for different places, have no idea where I want to go. I don't really care, to be honest with you. I'm just trying to figure out what seems like the best fit. And uh, as it got closer to graduation, I remember I was going to go to the University of Arkansas. I was going to be a Razorback. I was practicing my Wu Pig Sui. I had all of it down, I had t-shirts, ready to go. And then I get this letter in the mail, and it's from uh, Drury University, go Panthers. And uh, I honestly had forgotten I even applied there. My parents made me apply, I never even heard of the place, didn't know it existed, until they're like, hey, you should apply and go here, or you should apply to go here, and just see what happens. And I was like, I don't really care, I was filling out a bunch of these things anyways, so I sent it off. Well, a letter comes in from them, and they offered me um, a scholarship to attend. And uh, nobody else is doing that. And so when you start to look at that number, and you start to look at that number, and that number is much smaller, it becomes a lot easier of a decision. So I ended up transferring and deciding to go to jury. All right, so that's figured out. All right, now I need a job. Um, I need some money to be able to, to do anything in college and to survive and eat. So where am I gonna work? What am I gonna do? Well, because I had kind of taken so long to figure out where I was gonna go, uh, I didn't have a lot of options left. Uh, not surprisingly, all the good jobs were taken, and there was two jobs left. There was one washing dishes, which sounded great, and there was another one working in the marketing office. Uh, so you can guess which one I picked. I went straight for the marketing office, and I said, please, 
hire me, uh, even though I have no skill set at all to do whatever it is you're going to ask me to do. But I ended up getting that job. And what I found out later was that they had openings in that job only that year. The year before, it was filled by a bunch of seniors who had just graduated. So if you remember, I graduated a year later. Had I graduated on time, if my mom started me when I was five, I wouldn't have missed that opportunity entirely. All those positions would have been filled up. So then, uh, now the next question is, what do I want to do? What do I major in? You know, they hand you that piece of paper on your first day of college and they tell you to check some box and like you're supposed to know what you're going to do for the rest of your life at 18. Uh, and so I remember looking at all the options and I was like, I have no idea. But luckily, I was a fan of the TV show House. Uh, and so I was like, well, that's a cool show and he seems like an interesting guy and that seems like an interesting job. So pre-med it is. And I checked the box and I panned the paper in. I can hear the laughter because some of you are smarter than I am. And I was pre-med, ready to go. And uh, my other option was a uh, lawyer because I'm also into law and order. So um, the point of that is don't use television to base major life decisions on um, and that'll make you a much better person, than, especially than I was. And uh, so I started pre-med, and uh, it didn't take me very long to figure out that I hated it. Um, I got, in fact, uh, going into my sophomore year, I got so stressed out that um, I started going into depression and anxiety. Um, I had a stress reaction to where anytime I thought about class, my left eye would start twitching uncontrollably. Um, <laughs> which you laugh, it still does it today if I get stressed out. So if you see me and it starts going and while I'm up here, somebody come grab me, I may not be conscious for too much longer. But I was starting to have like a full meltdown because I could figure out that I didn't want to do pre-med, but then the next question is, okay, now what do you want to do? What, you know, you can say you don't want to do one thing, but you've got to replace it with something else, right? And so I came to this decision after all this like, anxiety and I just kept sitting there and just like churning it in my mind over and over, day after day, just hating it. And what I finally came to the conclusion was is that I don't think I had ever prayed one time to God about what uh, he wanted me to do for the rest of my life. I couldn't think of one moment where I sat down and just came to God and said, this is what I want to have. I want to have a career that I enjoy. And I don't know how to get there. I don't know what that journey is going to look like. I don't even know what the answer to that question is. But I'm going to trust that you do, and I'm just asking you to lead me. Never said anything like that in my entire life. I just figured that based on my television preferences that I could somehow come up with a way to figure out the rest of my life. So I sat down, and I remember sitting down in my room in my apartment, and I just started to pray. And you know what? The next day, nothing happened. But I kept praying. And the next day, nothing happened, but I kept praying. And that went on for some weeks. And then finally one day I realized, just out of nowhere, I just remember sitting in my room after I just finished praying, and I was just kind of looking at my schedule of like what I had left to do that day, and I realized that I was gonna go to work uh, at the job I had in that marketing office. And I remember thinking like, that is the best part of my day. Like, I love going there and I hate going to class. And then it just dawned on me like a light bulb, like, Hello, like, why don't you just do for a living what you enjoy doing right now as a job? And so after that, I um, made the amazing decision of dropping all my pre-med classes, which was a great moment, and uh, switched over and became a computer science major. 
I know I probably look like a nerd, so you already figured that out, but uh, that was what I ended up going with. And I just remember that feeling and in that moment when I kind of finally came to that decision and kind of understood like what I was actually meant to do. Um, Looking back over the last decade of my life and then it kind of hit me all at once of like all those little things that God had done. All those moments when I was growing up that I wished I was in the grade ahead of me, when I was angry at God because I wanted to be friends with the people that were a little bit older than me or actually they were my age. Uh, that I felt stuck when I got into college. I had no idea what I was doing. I felt so out of my depth. I had a plan. I mean, I had a goal. I just wanted to get to a career that I wanted. And yet, what I was doing was I was also trying to define the plan for that. I was trying to say, this is steps one, two, three, four, five. I knew the best way to get what I wanted. And God didn't need to be involved. And yet, I was absolutely 100% wrong. And it only took like this full breakdown moment of like a realization that I had no control, that everything that was going on was so beyond what I could understand and that I needed to surrender to God. And what I didn't realize is that all those moments he was detouring me, delaying me, putting me in places where I could grow and stretch myself and learn and trust him. And so coming to that conclusion was one of the greatest feelings I, I, can, I can ever describe having. And some of you maybe in here tonight can share that feeling. Maybe you're at the end of a journey just like that where you can kind of look back and you can celebrate what God has done for you over a a period of time and you can realize all those moments, see how God was was detouring you and delaying you, refining your character, strengthening your faith. But maybe some other people can't. Maybe some other people feel like the Israelites or maybe feel like I did uh, back in freshman year where you are just stuck where everything feels like anytime you want to take a step forward, it's just 10 steps backward. You see where you want to go and you know what your goal is, but the plan for it just never seems to materialize in front of you. And you start to lose faith and you start to feel hopeless. And looking at that, I can identify with that as well. Um, I mean, if you asked me when I was 16 or 18 or 20 or 22 or 24, Jordan, what is your life going to look like at 28? Uh, I think the first words out of my mouth uh, in response to that every single time would have been, I'll be married and I'll have kids. Because when you're younger, you think you know exactly how your life's going to turn out, right? So every time I would have been asked that question, that would have been my answer. And yet as I stand here today, my life could not look anything but the opposite of that. And so coming to terms with that, what does that mean? I mean, does that mean that God's forgotten about me because I had a plan and that's a good plan as we've seen and we talked about in series prior to this. God designed marriage for us and to celebrate him and to reflect his glory. It's a good goal to have. So if God's not leading me in that direction, if instead I feel like he's constantly pulling me some other way, does that mean he's forgotten about me? Does that mean that I don't matter to him or Does that mean that that's just not something he's going to do for me? Maybe instead what it means is that my plan and my thought process and my idea of when God should have certain things accomplished in my life is a little bit overzealous on my part. Maybe instead what I should be doing is recognizing the fact that God is working so many different things together, weaving all of our stories together. Did you know that none of you are here tonight by accident? Nobody walked in this room tonight because God wasn't paying attention. 
God has been leading you even to this moment and he'll be leading you as soon as you leave. This isn't some random series of events. You can never convince me that all those things I talked about leading to um, me finding the right major and career are, are coincidences. I'll never believe that. I'll never buy into the idea that, oh, you're just assigning you know, these little things all kind of lined up. God had an idea for me at age of five that he instilled in my mom just to make one small decision and it changed the rest of my life. And that was on purpose. And just because I didn't understand it as I grew up and just because I felt angry about it doesn't mean that his plan had any less significance and that he didn't have a greater purpose for me uh, when I, as I got older. And to be honest with you, I'm excited to see where the rest of it goes. Why did he put me there? Why did he give me a passion to do what I do now as a living? I have absolutely no idea. But I know that I have the rest of my life to figure it out, that I have the rest of the, my time here on earth to explore what the God's plan is for me and to trust him in every step. So I can have great goals, and as we close tonight, um, and as the band comes back up, um, I just want to kind of explore um, one, two things that we can do to help overcome those feelings of hopelessness and depression and anxiety. Two things that will help us look into our own hearts and realize that it's not about our plan, it's about God's plan. Um, and the first thing is that you can remember you need to celebrate those, those times when God does overcome challenges in your life. But know that that's not enough. It's not enough just for me to look back on the times that God provided for me because take a look at what the Israelites had. All right, The Israelites, they had just seen plague after plague after plague brought down on Egypt in ways that they will never be able to explain or understand. They had been led out by a cloud of smoke and a pillar of fire that God was using day and night to lead them exactly where they wanted to go. They were seeing miracles that you and I will never get to experience and yet at the first sign of trouble, they panicked. So we can take away from that that yes, celebrating what God has done for us is a, great, is a great moment and a great opportunity and should be done as often as possible, but it is not enough, all right? So what's the second thing? The second thing is committing to a daily act of surrender, to waking up every single morning and starting a day saying, God, I have a goal, I want to be here. This is where I see, what, this is what I wanna be, this is what I want my life to be. And God, I don't know how I'm gonna get there, but I trust that you do, and I trust that you have a plan for me, and I surrender my life to, that, to your plan. See, don't walk away from here tonight thinking like, okay, Jordan just wants us to give up, let go of the reins entirely, have no goals, have no plans, have no ideas, nothing, just like walk around waiting for a booming voice to come down and say, go here or do this. But that's not it at all. God wants us to have goals. He wants us to share with him what's on our heart, where we wanna be, what we want our lives to be. But what he doesn't want to see from us is us trying to outline steps one, two, three, four, and five. Because God's plan is so much bigger than our lives. So in those moments when you feel forgotten, in those moments when you feel distant from God, in those moments when you think like he's not paying any attention, I can promise you that he is. And I can promise you that because in Exodus chapter 14, verse 14, we see uh, Moses's, or we see God's response through Moses to the Israelites. So up to this point, the Israelites, they, you know, they've moaned and complained and they've carried on and they've shown a lot of doubt. And yet God looks at them and he simply says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. 
And to be honest with you, if that doesn't get you excited tonight, then have your neighbor check your pulse because what God is saying in that moment is a promise that will never return void, all right? He's telling you right now, I will always fight for you. Just because you can't see it, just because you don't understand what maybe it looks like, just because you don't know what's going on in that moment, doesn't mean I am not working in your life to lead you to the place that I have prepared for you. You are not forgotten. God is never silent or surprised by some development in your life. That verse right there is a promise that will never return void. He has a plan and he will fight for you, but only when we surrender and trust his plan. Only when we stop trying to go north, trying to get there fastest, trying to get there first, and instead let him lead us south so that his glory may be known to us. And so I encourage you to use this moment right here, right now, as we move into song and a time of invitation to start that process to take this opportunity to surrender to God, to surrender to his plan, to simply say, I trust you. Whether that's here up at the altar and there'll be people up here that would love to pray with you and share in that moment with you or in your seat, it doesn't matter. It just matters that your heart is open to the plan that God has for you. And then don't let it stop here. Don't go home and forget what we said tonight in this place. Don't go home and forget all that we've talked about, about God's providence through difficult times. Take tomorrow morning, start it first thing before you get out of bed. God, I trust you with today. Lead me today in your will. Help me to visualize and see my goal. Help me to take one step forward in whatever way that looks like, I trust in your plan. And then the next day, do it again. And I promise you what you'll see as you start to do that over and over and over again is one thing, your life will not turn out any way you think it will right now. And number two is you will be filled with a joy and a purpose the likes of which you can't possibly imagine. Because God is gonna honor that commitment. God's gonna honor you saying that in those moments. He's gonna honor your heart and he's gonna show up big time. And he's gonna say, all right, if you're in, I'm in, let's do it. And he's gonna lead you through a Red Sea. He's gonna lead you around a city with walls that were impenetrable and he's gonna knock them down. He's gonna do for you in your life what he did in the life of the Israelites. So don't waste this moment, don't waste this opportunity. Uh, and I just ask now that as we uh, bow your heads and we'll just kind of pray and close, um, the altar up here is open. Um, make use of this time. Don't let it go to waste. Open your heart up to the plan that, that God has for you. Thank mm -hmm. you.